0: I think Guy already mentioned uh, in an earlier talk a little bit of the story of the Buddha's enlightenment process, how after he left his home, his life of great luxury and sensual pleasure, he sought out two of the famous teachers of his day who taught deep states of concentration. And with each one, it's said that he gained mastery. Of those techniques they taught to the extent that both of them ended up saying you 've learnt all I have to teach. come sit beside me and teach with me and the Buddha said no to both of them said that realized for himself that that path did not lead to the freedom the liberation that he was looking for, so he went on from that exploration of deep states of concentration. Um, to try the other common practices of the time, which were ascetic practices. And again, it seems like the Buddha, whatever he did, he did to the nth degree. And so he really, I was going to say excelled, I don't know if that's the word, but I guess it is, in these ascetic practices. He did them as deeply and as with as much commitment, or more than anyone had, um, and he said things like, "Whatever you know, pain anyone's experienced, racking pain. I have experienced more than that about, you know, the 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 torturing of the body that he experienced. I don't think he had any sense of what childbirth might be like, but <laughs> hunger pains definitely he knew what they were. Um, because the idea was basically that if you torture the body enough, the soul, the atman, would." release and join with Brahma. Again, I'm not uh, expert in those beliefs, but it was something like that. In the mortification of the body, something would be released and that would be the way to liberation. And again, he saw that those ascetic practices were not the way. So he was kind of stuck because there wasn't much else available. And it's interesting, he had one of those, you'd have to call it a moment of grace or some opening where his mind turned back to a time when he was a young boy. And it said that he was a prince, his father was a king, whether it was technically that, but certainly from a wealthy family, his father could have been a a chieftain of a large area. Um, But it was, a, you know, they were leaders in their community He remembered a time as a young boy when his father was doing something like um, a ritual plowing of the fields, a fertility rite in the spring, perhaps. So there was a lot of activity going on, but the Buddha-to-be was sitting in the shade of a rose apple tree. It's springtime, perhaps the blossoms are out, there must be the smell in the air, the moisture um, of the springtime, the fecundity of the earth. And he was just sitting under this tree, very deeply contented, and his mind just fell into a natural state of absorption. So what he was remembering was that time. And I always find this interesting that as his mind is searching for what could be the way, not indulgence, not, uh, not the concentration, not the asceticism, he didn't turn back to his teachers in the deep states of concentration that they taught, as sublime as they must have been. What he remembered, what prompted him to shift his practice was this memory. So just imagine, if you will, if you were a young child without any duties on a beautiful spring day, sitting under a rose apple tree, unhurried, contented, and your mind had naturally fallen into a kind of absorbed state. What, what's the, what kind of mental factors, feeling, tone, etc., do you think he was experiencing? You know, because in the states of deep absorption, we sort of get the sense of, you know, there's the power of the mind and it being directed and all of these different manifestations of absorption. But here's this young boy, under a blooming rose apple tree, contented, unhurried, unburdened by duties, as the Metta Sutta tells us. That's what he remembered. I always think there's something instructive in that for us. Whenever we get caught up in knots about this practice, remembering the Buddha-to-be under the rose apple tree, and so he realized that there, that was something. There was a doorway there, or that was onward leading in a way these other practices hadn't been. So he tried a different approach from his ascetic practices. Um, and at the time, again, if you know the story of the Buddha, he'd been practicing with these other five ascetics. They were all kind of in it together. Um, and they all looked to Gotama. They thought he was, you know... Anyway, uh, this is what the Buddha said. So he realized he had to give up on these extreme ascetic practices, which included not eating. He got down to, you know, a grain of rice a day. He said if he could press his belly button, he'd touch his spine, and it, his his ribs just stuck out, stuck out like the broken roof, uh, rafters of a house. So he said, so I took some solid food, some rice and porridge, and it... it um, Oh, her name just escaped me. Sujata, Sujata, thank you. Sujata the milkmaid saw him there and she was the um, catalyst for the beginning of this enlightenment. Now, I've been on pilgrimage to India. There's a beautiful stupa commemorating... Her life and her act of generosity in, in giving food to the Buddha. So, Sujata, the milkmaid, gave him some rice and porridge. Now, five monks or ascetics had been attending on me, thinking, if Gotama, our contemplative, achieves some higher state, he will tell us. But when they saw me taking some solid food, some rice and porridge, they were disgusted with me and left me, thinking, Gotama, the contemplative, is living luxuriously. He has abandoned his exertion and is backsliding into indulgence. So a little extreme, these guys, you know. Some rice and porridge, Ugh, off the rails there. But that was enough for the Buddha. He realized he needed nourishment to actually have the mind deepen in the way he intuited was possible. He needed some life energy he needed some sense of well-being. And so that was then the path he took. And there's a whole story to be told about what he opened to, um, sitting under the Bodhi tree, his night of enlightenment, but that's another tale. But after he did become enlightened, he wondered who he could share this with. And he thought first of his two old concentration teachers, that their minds were ripe. They had gone to this highest degree of purification of mind through concentration, but he realized they died through his psychic powers. And so then he thought of the five ascetics and uh, that they were also really sincere in their practice and tracked them down, said he walked for a couple of hundred miles to find them to, to the deer park at Isipatana, Sarnath. And these ascetics, when they saw him coming, said, oh, here's Gautama, look at him, he's fat, you know, he's got hair, he's wearing clothes, you know, he's not on the right path. But they couldn't ignore him, he was glowing, and they made a seat for him and heard his teachings, and gradually they too became enlightened. And what he chose to teach them was the Dhamma Pavatana Sutta, the turning, setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma, essence being the Four Noble Truths, but the simple thing the Buddha kept repeating was the middle way, this middle way between mortification, the ascetic practices, and the indulgence that he had known very completely in his life as a young man. And so learning to discriminate between wholesome, life-sustaining happiness and pleasure which actually is necessary and can lead to freedom and liberation, and that which is unskillful and just leads to more suffering, more confusion. So this was his exploration, the middle way between these extremes, between asceticism and indulgence. And this is what he continued to teach for the next 45 years uh, I there's a, um, a philosopher, a 20, 21st century philosopher, actually it's a pair of them really, they, they kind of um, support each other in reframing what the other is offering. Um, Calvin and Hobbes, you know Calvin and Hobbes? <laughs> actually I guess it's Hobbes who's the philosopher, Calvin is just the id sort of looking to to get his, his uh, desires met. So in this scene, you know, the different panels, Calvin and Hobbes are climbing a tree. It looks like they're, you know, happy, you know free and climbing this tree. And Calvin, the l- young boy, is saying, I suppose the secret to happiness is learning to appreciate the moment. Next frame as they go higher. I, for example, take great pleasure in being right here, right now, doing exactly what we are doing, right? The essence of mindfulness. Hobbes, of course, you're meant to be in school. (laughs) Calvin, I couldn't appreciate those moments. We have preferences, right? We all have preferences, and those preferences, talked the other night about Burma, they lead to suffering, discontent, the mind that's not okay, with things as they are, and another way of saying that is, is dukkha. And you, you, can, you can be excused for thinking that Buddhism is all about dukkha, right? It's the first noble truth, the Buddha talked about it again and again, and it really is a profound doorway. But he never talked about dukkha, about suffering, without talking about the end of suffering. It's in seeing and understanding the nature of dukkha that we come to the end of dukkha. But many of us misunderstand this teaching and we kind of think if we're not suffering we're not serious, you know, and if we're not going through some major purification, we're not getting anywhere. It's like always looking for what's wrong. I call it being on pain patrol, where it's just, you know, where's the I get to fix that? Put out that fire. Waiting, waiting, where's the next problem that I'll have in the mind in the body, something that'll come up? Um, But as I said, the Buddha never talked about suffering without seeing it as a doorway, without a doorway to the end of suffering. And he was actually called the happy one. He was described as radiant, serene. Um, He gave a lot of emphasis to the importance or the centrality of joy in his practice and his teachings. Venerable Analeo, our scholar in residence just down the hill at BCBS, says that the entire scheme of the gradual training of the Buddha can be envisaged, envisaged, envisaged as a progressive refinement of joy. That's another way of looking at it. Right? It's not all about suffering. It's refining our understanding of joy and again another quote after his awakening the buddha declared himself to be one who lived in happiness this is really the the path and the fruit of the path this kind of joy this kind of happiness isn't about chasing sense pleasures as I said, the Buddha had tried that as a young man, as a prince, indulgent, indulging in everything that was available of clothes and perfumes and food and sex and sense pleasures, music, etc. It's not that kind of happiness. He saw that didn't work. But our willingness to work skillfully with the challenges of the mind, heart, and body as they come up, the more we're willing to do that, the more this true or resilient happiness can arrive, can arise. So there's a lot of stories in the suttas about this kind of happiness and how the people practicing with the Buddha were known to be very happy. A, a king visiting a monastery described the early Buddhist monks as smiling and cheerful, sincerely joyful and plainly delighting, living at ease and unruffled. And I think that text goes on to kind of compare with some of the more doer um, practitioners of the time that were, you know, with this grim determination. And the Buddha's disciples were seen as really uh, living with this sense of ease. And in the Aranavibhanga Sutta, the Buddha makes this contrast. Again, he says, one should not pursue sensual pleasures which are low, vulgar, coarse, ignoble, and unbeneficial, and one should not pursue self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, and unbeneficial. The middle way discovered by the Tathagata, the name he gives himself, avoids both extremes, giving vision, giving knowledge. It leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. One should know how to define pleasure, and knowing that one should pursue pleasure within oneself. One should know how to define pleasure, and knowing that one should pursue pleasure within oneself. So his definition of pleasure, what he's talking about here, was concentration, samadhi and the jhanas. That's what he really saw as bringing this kind of pleasure that was onward, leading. He says, "'Here bhikkhus, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, a bhikkhu or a practitioner enters and abides in the first jhana, the second jhana, the third jhana, the fourth jhana. This is called the bliss of renunciation, the bliss of seclusion, the bliss of peace, the bliss of enlightenment.' I say of this kind of pleasure that it is to be pursued, that it should be developed, that it should be cultivated, and that it should not be feared. This is really important for us to hear from the words, the mouth of the Buddha. The power and the wholesome pleasure of a mind that's developed in this way. And so why we think it's so valuable uh, to explore these practices of samatha leading to samadhi. And perhaps you're getting, if if this practice is somewhat new to you or if you've explored it before, the power and the pleasure of a concentrated mind. We get a sense of what the Buddha was talking about. Unfortunately, it's not a pleasure that for most of us is easily accessible. It takes time, right? It takes time in this kind of committed, but gentle, persistent effort that we've been talking about again and again and again. And for most of us, the pleasures of the sense doors are relatively easy to access. You know, you have a refrigerator and there's probably all you could want, or the ice cream freezer or, or whatever. So we get lured in that direction, but being here practicing in this way, other practices you've done, start to give you a taste of what it's like when the mind gets trained and refined in this way, that we can know this kind of pleasure for ourselves. And a big part of this practice for me was really developing that confidence or faith in my own capacity, to experience this kind of pleasure, this kind of stillness, this kind of deepening of concentration. So a big part of our practice is the training or the understanding of what are the supportive conditions for developing that kind of pleasure. And again, what we've been talking about over and over again Part of what supported the Buddha and his community at the time was something that, again, we've spoken about the beauty of nature. You know, we're here at almost a perfect time of year with this lushness, the flowers, the smells. The, let me tell you, the bugs aren't too bad yet. I don't you know if you're not from Massachusetts, this is actually pretty good. Um, but to, to really see that as a wholesome pleasure, to take delight and joy in the beauty of nature and let it really bring us that wholesome pleasure because the wonderful thing about nature is we can't own it you know you don't own that field of lupins you can't take them home with you all we can do is appreciate them and, and know their nature their impermanent changing nature I, I remember hearing an, another teacher saying, why nature is so powerful is it doesn't reflect back strongly to us a sense of self. Most things we kind of, you know, you've already accumulated your spot in the hall and your cushion and, you know, your blanket and your room. But nature's not yours, right? So there's a purity to that pleasure that we can get, that uplift, that delight. And it invites a sense of calm and spaciousness. The mind just widens with these vistas, Of beautiful nature. So that's a really wholesome kind of pleasure that can support the kind of contentment that we've been talking about. And so there's many examples in the texts, in the tradition, um, both of the time of the Buddha and more recently the Zen poets who just expressed their delight in nature. I love this very simple one by Ryo The bamboo grove in front of my hut every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it. It's like that field of lupins out there. Just every time I walk by, there's a little spark of joy. Let that in. And then this is from a book that hasn't been published yet, It's actually a new, and they're not quite translations, they're more like interpretations of the verses of the Theragata, the the early Buddhist nuns. And it's by um, a student, a practitioner, a scholar, who is often around IMS Maddie Weingast. It's called The First Free Women. Hopefully it'll come out early next year. Um, And it's just these beautiful renditions uh, of these... Poems, basically enlightenment poems, but they're very sensuous and they're very um, alive. You know, they're not dry or stilted. So this is, and there, each poem is just the, uh, entitled the name of the nun who, who spoke it or wrote it. And the, so this one's by Dina, which means she who has given herself to the Dhamma. For so long, I thought only of the river's end. Then one morning, I set my paddle down to watch the sunrise over the eastern hills, only to find myself floating somehow gently upstream. I promise it was not what I had expected. So I'm sure she wasn't paddling literally in any kind of canoe or kayak. You don't do that as a nun, I'd really take that she put her striving down. I put my paddle down and just watched the sun float up. And with that floating up, her mind released to find herself floating somehow gently upstream, upstream. I promise it was not what I had expected. So letting nature teach us, brighten our spirits, show us Nature shows us the nature, right? The three characteristics. But in that, there is still beauty in its preciousness. So nature and being in nature is such a great teacher for us and and one of the the skillful conditions for developing contentment and well-being. Most of the Buddha's teachings were... Directed to renunciates. If you read the text, he was often, you know, he would was talking to bikus. I, I, what my understanding is that the address, who would be named, would often be, you know, because it was a hierarchical uh, community. bhikkhus, then bikunis, then laymen, then lay women. And so, even though the the text might say bhikkhu or speaking to bhikkhus, there would often be nuns certainly there and lay people. And so he did speak to lay people and talked about what was happiness for them. So here we are, pretty much mainly lay people, um, not fully ordained bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, taking all of those vows of renunciation. And he gave these very direct teachings that still apply to us today. He said, the sources of a lay person's happiness are the happiness of possession, the happiness of enjoyment, the happiness of freedom from debt, and the happiness of blamelessness. And that means acting ethically, so we're not um, worried about our ethical actions. And in another sutta, a lay person comes to the Buddha and says, Venerable sir, we are lay people who enjoy sensual pleasures Dwelling at home in a bed crowded with children, enjoying fine sandalwood, wearing garlands, scents, unguents, accepting gold and silver, what will lead to our welfare and happiness both in this present life and in the future life as well? So here's some, you know, it's a little bit different perhaps than how we might describe our life, but you can recognize a lot of that, right, about our lives, the complications complication of it and all of the sense pleasures that are available. The Buddha doesn't say, give that all up, you know, become a monk or a nun, go to the woods, to the monastery, to the forest. He talks about what can bring true happiness to us as lay people. He talks about skillfulness in one's livelihood, being careful with one's savings, having wise and generous friends, living in a balanced way, So not extravagantly, but also not miserly. You know, being poor is not held up as, you know, that's how we should all live. But then the next part of the question, and so that's how to live happily now. The next part was how to live happily in the future. And here he points to faith. So faith in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, moral discipline, sila, generosity, and wisdom. That these are really our supports as, as lay people who are sincere about our practice. And that really covers, you know, Dhanasila Bhavana, the whole of the, the Buddhist path, um, and including wisdom, Panya, which, you know, the simple definition is understanding the three characteristics, that the impermanent, unsatisfactory, impersonal nature of experience, or as I've heard it framed, things are not permanent, not perfect, and not personal. Even, oh, not even, for us as sincere practitioners, that wisdom part is really important. But so are the others. So are the others. That, you know, being a sincere practitioner doesn't mean we have to give up everything, you know, our house, our relationships, our possessions. We just need to relate to them wisely. So all of us are living some kind of interesting middle ground, where we're really sincere practitioners. You wouldn't be here uh, unless you were. Um, So we're kind of a hybrid in between, you know, uh, the complete renunciation of the monastic life and precepts. And traditionally, you know, in in many Buddhist countries, lay practitioners would practice mainly dana and sila, generosity and um, ethical conduct. And not so much practice meditation, but here we are sincerely um, practicing and practicing here for concentration. What are the supports for us? What kind of contentment well being would would actually support the mind simplifying and deepening in this way and this you know there 's no right or wrong here, but really important important for each of us to look at these questions about simplicity and renunciation and ease and well-being. Again, the Buddha doesn't say, you know, give things up. He says, be careful with your savings. Be generous. Live in a balanced way. So for each of us, what is that that actually supports the mind having some well-being? If we're always struggling in our lives financially, economically, it's really hard to practice. And, and, you know, we're blessed, all of us, that we can be here, able to practice in this way. What many of us have to be careful about is, um, as we deepen in our practice, some of our biggest issues can often feel somewhat resolved. We've worked through some of the challenges that we've had in life, we've you know found uh, a livelihood or enough comfort in financially that you know we can practice enough or uh, you know can do practice and it of course that can change at any time we can get a health diagnosis a change in the situation of a loved one it's still precarious but often we can find some balance and ease there. And we have to be careful a little bit complacency can come in. One of my teachers called it high-class samsara. (laughs) You know, it's like, got the basics covered. But what's really important for us? How do we keep that um, impetus to practice? We really, that's where the faith piece comes in of really what's important for us. Um, because if we're reliant on this sense of well-being by, well, I've got things mainly sorted, you know, it could be a little better here or there, but the basics have been put in place for a level of comfort. It's so conditional, right? The heavenly messengers can change that for us at any time, five subjects for frequent recollection. Because it's true that compared to how most people live on this planet, we live like kings and queens, like princes and princesses. We have so many um, possibilities for just well-being, just having hot running water at the turn of a tap, clean water to drink, just that. So much of the planet doesn't even have to have a roof over ours, clothes to wear. And we can obviously get obsessed by that. So many cultural messages about, you know, the best, you know, and these days the fads or there's an app for that, you know. You can call up something and get it delivered to your door, you know, now by drone perhaps. You You know, we haven't seen that yet dropping in over the Forest Refuge, but we'll be able to tell which room it's going to, you know. He's been ordering drone deliveries. It's all available, right? It's like one click. They, you know, Amazon keeps saying, "Don't you want to make this easier? Just do it with one click. Who wants three clicks? That's just too slow." Um, so, what's what are the right conditions? What are the right conditions? This is really important for us, not and to see that the contentment that these practices offer aren't about getting more. Certainly not more stuff. Not the right zafu or zabuton or place in the hall or whatever, um, but not even, you know, a certain experience. It really is out of contentment. This is such, so important, this deep contentment that's not reliant on conditions. And so what does this mean, this message from the Buddha about contentment, about pleasure, about well-being as is so supportive for us again most of us have done many years of vipassana insight meditation practice where you know the basic teaching is well if the hindrances arise work with them skillfully you know the manure for enlightenment be mindful of them feel in the body remember the acronym RAIN recognize accept investigate non-identification we get engaged with this. Really a big part of our practice is learning how to work with the hindrances. If something pleasant happens, have you ever had a teacher say, well, did you note it? Or, you know, it's impermanent, let it go, don't get attached. Um, And of course that's wise because that is true, but it's different here. When we're practicing for concentration for this kind of stillness, as we said about the hindrances, Yes, of course, if we need to, if that's the most skillful thing, we do um attend, as I said, to the hindrance, but that's the last of our strategies, right? The first one is allow, can it just be in the background? Can we avoid it or even abandon it that it's actually skillful to have this non engaged relationship with the hindrances as best we can, the not now let's not go there again. That's not the final uh, uh, answer. If if something's really up, we need to attend to it. And I said, for me, I'm always surprised at how little a thing it can be, and I just need to attend to it because the mind isn't going to soften with that itch or bite or ache or heartache. Um, We need to attend to it, if we need to attend to it. But um, there is a different sort of intention in our relationship, the hindrances and if there's something pleasant as a result of this contented mind we want to feel it fully we want to feel it in the body feel it in the heart in the mind we want to feel it cellularly we want to nourish it this is the second half of the four great or wise efforts we want to know and name and encourage and develop whatever it is that's that's of this kind of wholesome skillful pleasure and so recognizing piti or sukha these factors that that we've spoken about to really know what calm feels like on a deep cellular level so it's all sort of six sense doors Having this full experience. So, whenever you see concentration and the the role of concentration in any of the Buddha's lists, it's always associated with these other beautiful qualities. So, again, in your um, study guide, you know, we list the seven factors of enlightenment where concentration is one. It's on page three, quote nine. And it's one of the five spiritual faculties. And many of these um, beautiful qualities are listed in the Anapanasati Sutta on page two of the study guide. Again, these qualities of, of um, calm and rapture and pleasure and gladdening, that these are all both supportive of and developed by the mind that's practicing in this way, this kind of deepening of the samatha leading to samadhi. And then it's always onward leading, that the mind that is, you could say, sweetened by, um, suffused with these beautiful qualities, is then ripe for this turning that often happens after concentration to some form of insight knowledge and vision and knowledge according to reality etc yata buta Yanadasana. um the concentration often is this turning point out of this suffusing with these beautiful qualities so again in the anapanasati sutta that's exactly what happens there are these um, supportive or foundational conditions of the calming and the tranquilizing, and then the gladdening and the concentrating of the mind, and then it starts turning to wisdom. The way we're teaching it, that just happens very naturally. You can practice with teachers, hear teachings where there's actually a kind of, you know, more, more um, clear point to. I know Venerable Anale, if you practiced with him, will actually invite us through the stages of the uh, 16 steps of the Anapanasati Sutta. And so that can be a skillful way to do that. If we know the map, we can incline the mind or or skillfully be sensitive to. I think I used that image the other day, or a metaphor of you know knowing from the bird book and then recognizing a new bird I hadn't seen before. The more we know these lists and these maps and we really know the supportive foundational conditions, we can have, again, it's very subtle, but just our radar out, our knowing how the unfolding and our trust of that is a, a skillful way to, for the practice to develop. I spoke the other night about when I first had a really clear experience of sukkha, and how tantalizing it was, the sweetness of it, the soothing nature of it. And to have that experience sitting in my little room over at the retreat center, you know, on a a cushion in the fall at, you know, November at IMS, not due to external conditions. Of course, as I said, the mind immediately, you know, Try to hold on to it, make it last, get it back, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Once I realized again that that didn't work, I could start to get a sense of the role of sukha or how to use sukha more skillfully. How to, and it can be very subtle. You know, this. I had a strong kind of initial hit, but afterwards it just became more this soft sweetness that was so. Um, so useful to understand. And again, we've said that this kind of uh, experience, sukha, contentment, well-being, happiness, is the proximate cause, is nearly always in some way precedent to the concentration, to the samadhi, as well as, of course, mindfulness and the deepening, the frequency of of recognition of mindfulness and tranquility and these other Again, supportive uh, factors. What's not on any of these lists is effort, striving, judgment, fixing, evaluation, comparing, etc. You won't find that. It's sort of over-efforting. I mean, effort and energy are there, but they're balanced, they're wise or right effort. And so how do we, you know, let go of that? It's, it's so... Um, so natural for us to do that. How do we keep creating the conditions for well-being, for contentment? A big part is, as I've said, being willing to notice if there is a hindrance. I said in my other talk, we have to really see. The mind isn't just naturally settling. One or more of the hindrances are present. It's just, it's kind of a simple equation. Tanasaro Bhikkhu, who again teaches... Breath meditation to concentration says we have to notice the disturbance, whatever is disturbing us, but then see, can we let that go? So the noticing might be enough, the recognizing and then not giving the energy to it in the beginning, and you know we're we're just now at the first end of the first full week of being here the hindrances were usually pretty gross. You know, there's aches and pains in the body, a lot of sleepiness and dullness, there's perhaps restlessness and worry. And it doesn't mean that those still aren't here, but you probably feel they've mellowed out a bit. You know, there's a little more brightness of mind. There's a little more well-being in the body. But what happens is the hindrances get more subtle. You know, they're still here. They're just operating on on a more subtle level. And so we really do need to bring our wisdom in, this kind of willingness to recognize them, name them and know them if they're here. Um, it's not about creating perfect conditions where nothing disturbs me so the mind can be at peace. I spoke about that you know, around Burma and how if I resisted the difficult conditions there, it was just too painful. Here, because things are basically so good for practice, like this was designed to support practice, right? It's the, the, the acoustics, the space, etc. But it's never, I said this before, it's either never perfect or it's always perfect, right? In its imperfection, and the more we tussle with that, the more struggle we'll have. We just need good enough conditions, you know, it's why there's signs on all the thermostats. Don't adjust this thermostat because someone goes by, it's too cold. No, it's too hot. Want the window open. Want the window closed. You know, there's at IMS there's signs everywhere, don't touch this. No, don't open the window. <laughs> because everyone has different ideas of what's perfect conditions. We have to find the contentment in the conditions that we, we're in, right? What would that look like? What would it be like? to surrender, to find the contentment with the conditions as they are. So external conditions, you know, we we bring a strong sense of the equanimity as best we can to them, to simplicity, to surrender. Internal conditions are perhaps more challenging, right? And the two obviously are related. So the internal conditions for this practice are basically... Coming back to the breath again and again and again, right? And being willing to do that. That's the instruction that we've been given. All of us will try to muscle that, right? I'm gonna be with the breath. I mean, how many breaths? Today's the day, this sitting, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna get on top of this breath meditation. I hear you've got holy instruction. Everyone does, right? Some version of that. Perhaps not as obviously as I just did. But the trouble is it always works to some extent. And that's why we keep getting fooled. You know, we can, through intensity of effort, through determined focus, we can push the attention onto the breath for a while. But it always collapses. It always collapses if we're doing it through that kind of kind of aggressive energy. And again, it doesn't have to be as aggressive as what I just sort of described, but that sort of force of intensity. I learned a lot from Ajahn Brahm. I think I've also mentioned him, Ajahn Brahmawangso, who lives in Australia. He's an English monk, also teaches breath meditation to jhana. And he told his one talk, I listened to him, listened to of his, um, he told his story of his practice as a monk in Thailand, difficult conditions, but he was determined to master jhana. He'd heard, read about them in the suttas, wasn't a lot of people teaching or practicing them in the monastery he was in, so he was just kind of doing it on his own, and he was determined to conquer jhana. And so he Used that attitude that I just described of just doing it by sheer force of will, you know, with the rigidity of of staying focused and, and being intent. And he would do it for whatever, hours, maybe days, maybe weeks, and he'd get some degree concentrated and something would always happen. It would always break. And then he'd be in despair and dismay and frustrated and resentful and angry and confused. And then he'd pick himself up and do exactly the same thing over and over again. So I I don't remember now how many times he went through that cycle, but he just realized it was pointless. He could never muscle the mind into the depth of concentration he was looking for and so he he stepped back from his practice and he said what needs to change here what 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 how what is it about how i'm relating to this practice that's being so difficult for me and he realized his basic attitude to the breath was that it was boring and the only way he was ever going to hold his attention on the breath was if he just you know glued it on if he held it there through sheer force of will and he Saw that that was never going to work. You know, it's like trying to hold something out. You know, you could, I could give you this to hold and it wouldn't be a problem for a minute or two or five. But when does it actually, you know, become impossible? The muscles just collapse. It will happen eventually. So he needed to change his relationship to the breath and he developed. A whole way of relating to the breath, you may have heard, he calls the beautiful breath or subasanya. And subasanya just means beautiful perception. But he needed to change his relationship or how he literally perceived sanya, perception, the breath. He, in the talks I've heard him give, he never says exactly how he did that. But for all of us, it is this change in relationship with the breath. How does the breath become, whatever word you would put in there, appealing, beautiful, relaxing, um, inviting, how do we learn to surrender to the breath? So these phrases we've used again and again of receptivity and openness, I'll often say, let the breath come to you. Interest in the breath, as we pointed to through the guided meditations, You know, whether it's the beginning, middle, end, or breathing through different parts of the body. The subtleties of the breath at times can be interesting. You know, it can be helpful at times to reflect on, this is the life-giving breath, the breath of life. You can stop drinking for a while. You can stop eating for even longer. How long can you stop breathing for? You know, it's just moments, right? it's so precious. Our first breath, when we're born, the last breath, when we die, these are all, can be helpful reflections to give some interest or appreciation to the breath. Another way of doing this is, again, through the subasanya imagery around the breath. You know, Does the breath have any beautiful qualities? Is it silky? Is it soft? Is it warm? Is it like waves? Is it flowing or circling? Is it like that subtle breeze where the, the, the leaves are just gently swaying? Imagery like this, normally we'd say, no, 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 you know, just the bare sensations. But to invite us into the breath, this can be really skillful. Uh, I've used Tanjeff's teachings where he says, How can I make the breath more comfortable, more relaxed, more easy? We have to fall in love with the breath in a non striving way. You know, we can't make these, this relationship happen. It is an invitation, you know, of this shift in relationship with the breath. And I consider all of these um, transitional objects. Um, the intention is to use to get closer to the breath, to invite the intention to rest on the breath, not just because they're pleasant or pleasurable, not just because it's easier or we like them, but does it help us rest there more clearly, more easily? And then when we can, we let them go. So like counting or noting, these are also skillful means that when we don't need them, we let them go. The The essence of this practice is the attention just resting you know I pointed to a little this morning just with more and more stillness more and more unwavering breath is doing whatever it's doing and the attention is just resting knowing and resting I got a, a really clear um experience with this i think guy mentioned uh, the other night kasina practice you know in the vasudhimaga this big text tome on all the different practices it's it's got a big section on concentration and there's 40 different practices which includes kasina practice and in kasinas um, there you take different objects that can be elemental kasinas like earth kasinas or air or wind um, fire. You can use a candle. You can make casinas. They're like colored discs. And um, they, talk, they talk about getting a circle of flowers of a certain color and then absorbing into them. So you make these casinas, And then the idea is with your colored disc or whatever casino you're using, you open your eyes and just absorb into it, stare as much as you can to fully and sort of in, mentally inhale that image, and then you close your eyes and recreate it internally, mentally. Um, and so I had been practicing actually here at the Forest Refuge doing Anapana and I thought I would try some of this kasina practice. I'd read about it but never had any instruction. And I, but I had heard that blue was the often the introductory kasina. So I thought, okay, I'll try to do some blue kasina practice. And I'd heard about these colored discs and the beautiful blue flowers. Well, it was November in Massachusetts. No flowers of any color, let alone blue flowers. So what I found was, if you remember, they don't have them anymore. It's also color-coordinated. But those sort of powdery blue zafus, Mm -hmm. sort of a robin's egg kind of pale blue. And I found one of those in a cupboard somewhere, and I sat that in front of me. I thought, here's my blue disc. I'll just try and absorb into this color and I tried <laughs> a blue Zafu it did not work and after a while I realized you know they talk about flowers because flowers are beautiful it wasn't beautiful enough or well, my perception it was a little grimy it was one of these old kind of <laughs> Zafus that looked like they'd been around a, been sat on quite a bit um, and so I had the thought, well, I know, you know, Subasanya, beautiful perception, beautiful blue. What's the most beautiful blue that I know? And I thought of the blue of a swimming pool on a hot summer's day or a tropical sea. And I just let that, those images just fill my mind and heart. And again, I can't say I got deeply absorbed, but I got very rapturous. So I had a sense of, you know, the skill in, you know, and I didn't have time to really deepen in that, but this shift that has to happen. We can't just, you know, stare at the breath and expect ourselves to get concentrated. I couldn't just stare at that Zafu and expect that to happen. And I think I've also spoken about when I was practicing here with Paul for a month. And, you know, we had practice meetings every day where all he cared about was how long can you be with the breath. And I had been practicing con- concentration for a while, do, do, done a number of years of various concentration practices. I'd talked about how relaxed and contented and ease you would need to be to do it well, and I was reminding myself of that. I thought it was what I was doing. Until one day I realized... I was just being with the breath in order to have something happen, in order to get concentrated, and certainly in order to have something to tell Sayadar at my next meeting. I think Guy mentioned this, the in order to. And once I saw that, it was like what I thought had been relaxed, open, spacious practice was full of striving. And it was just this, as I said earlier, the hindrance is getting more subtle, the subtlest leaning forward into breath in order to. That was enough to actually be an impediment. I actually had to sort of begin again, go for a long walk, get really spacious. All of these things we've been saying about starting really wide, that's what I had to do. I thought I was being just very diligent, but I was striving. So the striving can get very subtle. And so this right attitude, one of my concentration teachers would say, when you begin your concentration practice, just sit for as long as your mind is content sitting. And as soon as it's not, break the meditation. You know, you don't have to literally get up, but just open your eyes, change your posture, begin again if you, you can, or go for a walk and just build up really incrementally. She also said, I remember it was a great instruction, every now and then just find a comfortable chair by a window and stare out the window. Don't try and meditate, but don't sit there and try and think either, but just let the mind be soft. So a few of you have said that, oh, I've just tried not meditating. That's actually really helpful because we pick up all these ideas, even as we're saying, relax, be at ease, you know, but you also hear precision mm-hmm. and counting and hundreds and, and the mind grasps, right? how do we find and cultivate the internal conditions of contentment and simplicity? This, learning how to do that is more valuable for you than any concentrated experience, any deep state, even any bliss, because they're impermanent, but the training and the understanding of how to invite that into the mind is actually the most important thing. So I want to finish with another poem from that book, The First Three Wom- Women. This is from Yenta, Yenta the Conqueror. I was f- actually I think I've got two of them. I was forever getting lost until one day the Buddha told me, and it certainly does help to have the Buddha tell you things, I think. Until one day the Buddha told me to walk this path, you will need seven friends, the seven factors of awakening. Which is page three, quote nine in your they're your friends. For many years, these friends and I have traveled together, sometimes wandering in circles, sometimes taking the long way round. There were days when I thought I couldn't go on. There were days when I thought I was finally beaten. It's scary to give all of yourself to just one thing. What if you don't make it? Oh my heart you don't have to go it alone. Train yourself to train just a little more gently. What if you don't make it? Oh my heart, you don't have to go it alone. Train yourself to train just a little more gently. And sama, which means song. Like a dog forever getting ready to sit, All day and all night, I circled my cushion. No, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get... These days, body and mind sit together like old friends. Since we aren't getting anywhere, they eventually decided, why not have a seat and try to relax? There are many paths. Like a dog forever getting ready to sit... All day and night, I circled my cushion. These days, body and mind sit together like old friends. Since we aren't getting anywhere, they eventually decided, why not have a seat and try to relax? There are many paths. So let's let the words settle into silence. Again, thank you for your attention. Time to do some walking or stretching, cool night air. And if you have energy back at nine o'clock for chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com